my radio call-in shows. Had my father been driving, we would have locked all the doors and ignored the stop signs, speeding through the area as quickly as possible because that's what smart people did. Pulled over and parked behind a van, whose owner stood examining his flattened tire with a flashlight. Things might get a little rough up there, so just do what I tell you and hopefully no one will get hurt. She flipped her hair over her shoulder and stepped out of the car, kicking aside the cans and bottles that lined the curb. My sister meant business, whatever it was, and in that instant she appeared beautiful and exotic and dangerously stupid. Local teens slain for sport, the headlines would read. Holiday hijinks end in homicide. Maybe someone should wait with the car, I whispered, but she was beyond reason charging up the street in her sensible shoes with a rugged, determined gait. There was no fumbling for a street address or doorbell. Lisa seemed to know exactly where she was going. I followed her into a dark vestibule and up a flight of stairs, where without even bothering to knock, she threw open an unlocked door and stormed into a filthy, overheated room that smelled of stale smoke, sour milk, and seriously dirty laundry. Three odors that, once combined, can peel the paint off of walls. This was a place where bad things happened to people who clearly deserved nothing but the worst. The stained carpet was littered with cigarette butts, and clotted, dust-covered flypaper hung from the ceiling like beaded curtains. In the far corner of the room, a man stood beside an overturned coffee table, illuminated by a shadeless lamp that broadcast his shadow, huge and menacing, against the grimy wall. He was dressed casually in briefs and a soiled T-shirt and had thin, hairless legs, the color and pebbled texture of a store-bought chicken. We had obviously interrupted some rite of unhappiness, something that involved shouting obscenities while pounding upon a locked door with a white-tasseled loafer. The activity consumed him so completely that it took the man a few moments to register our presence. Squinting in our direction, he dropped the shoe and steadied himself against the mantel.
to another. Hearing a fresh, slurred voice in the house, my brother and sisters rushed from their rooms and gathered to examine Lisa's friend, who clearly cherished the attention. Angels! You're a pack of goddamn angels! She was surrounded by admirers, and her eyes brightened with each question or comment. Which do you like better, my sister Amy asked. Spending the night with strange guys or working in a cafeteria? What were the prison guards really like? Do you ever carry a weapon? How much do you charge if somebody just wants a spanking? One at a time, one at a time, my mother said. Give her a second to answer.
This something's fucked up with this turntable. for his friends and relatives. He decides to go to Jeffrey's, the large department store downtown. Can I help you, sir? Yes, I'm looking for something in person. Any particular fragrance? Uh, I thought you might be suggesting that. Well, there certainly is a large variety to choose from. I can see that. <laughs> That's where the store Santa Claus holds court. Probably some kid didn't get what he wanted and is registering a complaint. Hey, stop that man! He stole my Christmas present! Hey, you! Stop! Watch it, mister. 
Sorry, pal, I'm in a hurry. I understand. Christmas rush. Yeah, well, I gotta run. Hey, mister, give me my Christmas present. Go away. Give it to me. Come on, kid, go away. What seems to be the problem? He stole my Christmas present. The one that Santa Claus gave me. Look, pal, she's my daughter. I wanted to surprise her. Now she's gonna rule the whole thing. He's not my father. Give me my present. I think you better give it to her. Get out of my way. Put that gun away. Someone could get hurt. Not if you leave me alone. Now stand aside. I'm walking out of here. Oh, you're not. At the Office of Scientific Intelligence, Colonel Steve Austin is in the security conference with his boss, Oscar Goldman. Good thing you called me in on this, Steve. When I grabbed that guy, he dropped the package and it broke open. I could see the thing inside was no ordinary Christmas present. That's why I picked it up and got it to you. Steve, you seem to have a talent for finding trouble. But in this case, you may have stumbled on a major espionage ring. An espionage ring? Steve, the man you fought with in the department store is Harrison Fredericks. For a long while, he's been known to be a free agent in the espionage market, selling his services to the highest bidder. But what is even more interesting to us is what he was carrying in that package. What was it? It was an electronic fuel cell for our latest attack missile, the SYR-9. The SYR-9? I thought that was out in California. Landing on the Arctic terrain, Steve and Oscar were accosted by the enemy agent Ramat at gunpoint, captured and locked up in an old warehouse. Is the wound serious, Oscar? I don't think so, Steve. Looks like a scratch. Where are we? It's a warehouse. Where are we?
Expect to resume normal broadcasting shortly. You could make it. No problem, Oscar. I'm staying in town for the holidays. Steve, the Air Defense Command in Colorado Springs picked up an unusual radio message the other day on a restricted frequency. No identification codes? That's part of the problem. All messages received over the defense network are preceded by an identification code, and they are followed by a second IDENT code before signing off. And this communication has no code on either side. They can't even decode the message. What are we going to do? It defies analysis, Steve. As a matter of fact, nothing on record as language or numeric code is anything like it. I've called in Dr. Landis. Ethel Landis? She's the top expert in the field of coded communication. And she has a lot of kooky ideas, Oscar. I know, Steve, but we can't afford to overlook any possibilities.
I've turned them into factions, and they've made a very nice living for me, and it seems to have worked. Did you ever feel that this time the horror stories jinxed you, that something that you feared and had written about was coming true? No, it never even crossed my mind. Um, it's strange, because off and on uh, in my career as a writer, I have certainly written... This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest Stephen King was nearly killed in June of 1999 while taking his daily walk. He was walking along the gravel shoulder of Route 5, a two-lane highway near his home in Maine, when he was struck by a van driven by Brian Smith, who had several prior convictions for speeding and reckless driving. Over a year later, Smith was found dead in his home. King is still recovering from his injuries, which included nine breaks in his right leg, his right knee split almost directly down the middle, a fracture of his right hip, four broken ribs, and a scalp laceration that required nearly 30 stitches. His spine was chipped in eight places. Yet, fairly early in his recovery, he returned to writing. I spoke with Stephen King in 2000, after the publication of his book, On Writing, which is part memoir, part reflection on his craft. The last chapter is about the accident. We started with a reading. Most of the sight lines along the mile of Route 5, which I walk, are good. But there is one stretch, a short, steep hill, where a pedestrian walking north can see very little of what might be coming his way. I was three-quarters of the way up this hill when Brian Smith, the owner and operator of the Dodge van, came over the crest. He wasn't on the road. He was on the shoulder. My shoulder. I had perhaps three-quarters of a second to register this. It was just time enough to think, my God, I'm going to be hit by a school bus. I started to turn to my left. There is a break in my memory here. On the other side of it, I'm on the ground, looking at the back of the van, which is now pulled off the road and tilted to one side. This recollection is very clear and very sharp more like a snapshot than a memory. There is dust around the van's taillight. The license plate and the back windows are dirty. I register these things with no thought that I have been in an accident or of anything else. It's a snapshot, that's all. I'm not thinking. My head has been swapped clean. There's another little break here.
Stand by. We are having difficulties here at Media Radio. It's six o'clock. It's time for Mute for the Gates of Delirium. Two hours of the greatest of prog rock ever conceived by man. I am going to work on this here. I'm trying to find some sound emanating from the devices here at the sprawling state-of-the-art studios of mutinyradio.fm. Stand by. Room that are familiar with this with this position. There seems to be a problem translating technologies. What we would be listening to is transcendent and triumphant astral entrance through the gates of delirium into the Elysian fields of meaning and purpose constructed with your own bare hands. Nothing handed down. That's too easy. We've seen th- that through that. We've seen through that. There's nothing to be handed down. Let's find out what's happening here. <sighs> Bye.
Thank you, Pam. <laughs> Thank you, Brady. I can't wait for your cats. So are we talking about... Problem solved. It was the flick of a switch. As it usually is. That's what the fate of humanity and civilization is ultimately probably going to come down to. A flick of a switch. Only adding to the sense of precariousness that we already feel. little rock floating through the unimaginably large cosmos. In the face of that, we know, and I assert, there's no time for mediocrity in anything we do, in anything we think, in anything we listen to. That's where progressive rock and roll comes in. Rock and roll as God meant it to be. Rock and roll taken and into a rich and experimental direction which explores 
the nuances and the crevices and the distant fields of the human condition. In the most badass of ways. This is the Gates of Delirium. I am your host, Perkins Warbeck. Shout out to Pam, who has been struck down by the plague. <clears throat> Sometimes it feels like 1349. Get well soon, Pam. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Alfred's World of Trousers. for their kind and unflagging support of the mission of us here at the Gates of Delirium to provide a small quantum of solace to those lost in the existential cosmos the Nietzschean desert of meaning. Trust me, you've found it here at the Gates of Delirium. Wednesday nights, 6 to 8, coming to you from the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco, California.
That was Benepilda Time Machine by Spock's Beard. Before that, we heard Eternity's Breath Part 1 from the Mai Vishnu Orchestra. You're listening to MutinyRadio.fm. We're going to continue with two for now from Hydria Space Folk. This is Terra Hydria, number one.
Like a cancer grows It's removed by skin Let it be
If I told you that mine would be the last voice that you ever heard, would you be concerned?
Pink, um, no, that was <clears throat> Frank Zappa. Pink of Rose, Mothers of Invention. Before that, we heard a classic from Genesis with Peter Gabriel. That was the first of fifth from the album Selling Eagles by the Pound. Came out in 1975. One of the seminal albums of my musical development is <clears throat> more than just a question of sounds. 
We're going to listen to a couple of space, uh, space prog tunes now. Moving on with Gong, A Sprinkling of Clouds. After that will be Osric Tentacles. You are listening to... The Gates of Delirium, here on MeetlyRadio.fm.
Welcome to the Gates of Delirium. Mm-hmm.